forever. Dog. Hey folks, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and host of the Writers Panel. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sticking with us. Uh, we've got a great bunch of interviews coming up in the next coming months. I think you're really going to enjoy them. Um, smart people, cool shows, cool people, smart shows. This hasn't happened in a long time, but I had this experience recently where I was falling asleep or trying to, and I had sort of been ideating during the day. Uh, I'm working on this new thing, and I'm just trying to put together thoughts about it. I had no idea what this thing was, and so I just sort of put together what I thought was a beginning of ideas to this thing. And then that night, as I'm falling asleep, I was hit by where this is going. And it's rare that I get into a project without knowing where it's going. I usually know I have some some shape of the thing in mind. That has not been the case of this. It's not been the case of a few things recently. Um, and it hit me where this could go, the logical place where this story could lead based on the characters and what they want and how they behave and how they interact with each other. And I couldn't get to sleep. I was so excited. Uh, I got out of bed and I, I immediately ran to my office and I wrote this stuff down and, and um, I went back to bed and then more ideas came. And I got up again, and at that point, I thought, I will spare my wife and go and sleep in the guest room uh, in my office. And because uh, I seemed to not be able to stop this train of ideas. And it was so exciting, and it was so invigorating. And I immediately call, uh, texted, this was at midnight, and I texted my collaborator on this project. Um, and I told her, like, I just had a breakthrough on this. I'm so excited. I can't get to sleep. I will email you in the morning. Um, and that hasn't happened for a long time. And I think it's in part because until these past this past year even, I've known what the story is before going in. And um, I may have talked in the past about starting a new work and was told, uh, and I was really, you know, it was not coming together for me, and I didn't know what the story was. I knew vaguely the premise. Um, and my cousin, who is a has written children's, uh, young adult books, I hadn't talked to her in a while. We got on the phone, and she said, listen, there are a lot of bad writers out there. You can write poorly. Just do it. Just put pen to paper. Just sit at the keyboard. Just start getting stuff down. Um, and that's what I did. And I started finding my way through that. And the characters started telling me where they wanted the story to go. Um, and it's, again, it's, it's a new way of working for me, or at least a way I haven't worked in probably 15 years. Um, and it's fun and it's exciting and it feels uncertain, but everything's uncertain right now and there's a kind of freedom in that uncertainty um you know these first drafts are not good my cousin was right i can write poorly i'm proving it every day um but i am writing i am getting the stuff down and it gets better and it gets revised and it gets better and i get notes and it gets better um and that's keeping me going 
you know, even as the industry is more uncertain than it's been ever, um, even as it's harder and harder to get projects off the ground, the writing feels better than it ever has. And I think I'm a better writer now than I ever have been, in part because of embracing this uncertainty. Anyway, it's working for me. Maybe it'll work for you. Let me know how it's going. Tell me about your writing these days. Find me on Twitter at Ben Blacker. And let's just talk about it. Let's talk about the process. Let's talk about writing. This is why I do the podcast. These are the conversations I still love to have. Um, They are endlessly interesting to me. And there are a lot of great ones coming up. I hope you enjoy them as much as I have. I hope you find inspiration in them as much as I have. Uh, If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes. It is very helpful to me. Here's another thing. Um, I've... I'm doing some teaching and I'm doing some consulting and I really like the consulting. Uh, I think I'm good at notes. I think people who have worked with me will tell you that I'm have a good story sense and I'm good at communicating that to you and helping you bring out the thing that you want to bring out in your work. Um, I want to help you Write the best script that you can write, whether it's for a fellowship, whether it's for a sample, whatever it is, whether it's just for you. Um, So I'm doing some consulting. I'm doing some classes, but the consulting is really where I think you get the good stuff. Um, You can hire me as a consultant, and I hope you will. Uh, Go to scriptanatomy.com, and then there's a, a little menu at the top, and just hit TV consultations. And choose me as your consultant. Um, I would love it. I really want to help people write the stuff they want to write. It's fun for me. Um, It's satisfying to me. I want to get your ideas out of your head and onto the page. So that's, uh, this is not an ad. This is really just something I'm doing and I love doing it. And I also need to get paid. Uh, Scriptanatomy, scriptanatomy.com. And then click on the TV consultations and uh, see what works for you. You know, there's stuff where you can just do an outline. There's stuff where you can throw ideas around. Um, there's stuff where, you know, I've, I've worked with a few students or a few students, a few people who have been terrific. And we've gone from outline to draft to polish. There are a few where we just talk about their outlines. Um, but do you, like do the big ones. Go from you know, do the script reads or the outline, do something that's really going to move you forward on your script. Um, Once again, scriptanatomy.com and click on consultations and uh, the TV consultations. I hope we can do that. I hope we can meet. That'd be cool. Thanks for listening. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker. And it's starting now. Oh, yeah. Before we get into today's episode, I'm going to chat with writer-director Jared Stern um, about the new DC League of Super Pets, which is out right now. Go see it. Take your kids to see it. Take your neighbor's kids to see it. I don't care. Just go see it. Um, But Jared has done a bunch of really cool work, um, and so I'm excited to talk to him. Thanks for being here, Jared. Thanks for having me, man. Uh, Let's start with League of Super Pets. I'm sure you have distilled this answer to uh, a beautiful two-sentence response. But, like, 
where did this come from? This doesn't seem like an obvious choice for Warner Brothers, for DC, um, but it's such a great, fun movie. It, your pitch must have been undeniable. How did this get rolling? Uh, well, they tried to deny it for quite a while, actually. How dare uh, they? The, the origin story is that I was volunteering one day at a pet shelter. Uh, I stressed one day because I'm not that good of a person. My wife volunteers there all the time. And I came to help out one day and uh, I noticed there was a sort of front room that had a bunch of adorable kittens that, I, you know, it, it's a miracle when any pet is adopted. So but I, I was hopeful that it seemed like they'd get adopted. And then there was this back room uh, that surprised me because it sort of had the lifers and uh, it felt like there were some older pets and disabled pets. And uh, and I felt like they kind of live here at the shelter and um, which was great. The shelter was taking great care of them. But I felt a little sad that they'd never have their forever home. And I don't know why, but for some reason I thought, uh, what if they got superpowers? <laughs> um, and then uh, I was working at uh, Warner Brothers and, uh, and they have all the DC IP. And, um, and I knew about the super pets and that it's uh, tough to get a corporation to make a movie unless it has IP in it. So, uh, and I liked the Super Pets a lot. They were fun as I started researching them and I was able to kind of take those two things and smush them together. And so that's the, the origin story of our origin story of the DC League of Super Pets. Um, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I mean, like sort of seeing where you come from, the movies that you've gotten to write, um, including like the, the Lego Batman and Lego Ninjago, like these sort of IP based things. Um, do you feel like <laughs> do you feel like there's a personal story in Super Pets? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, it came out of this personal thing of of wanting uh, these powerless pets to feel a bit more powerful, um, and uh, and I think the theme of the movie is something that I care about, um, even though I'm not a uh, an animal with superpowers. Uh, but I think everyone can relate to whether you're a kid or an adult, and it's just about selflessness. Uh, the sort of notion that um, if you really love someone, uh, you're willing to put their their feelings ahead of your own, and uh, and it's something that I uh, struggle with and strive towards. Uh, you know, I was an only child; everything was about me. So uh, um, I I think it's just a good way to be in life and and uh, and in the world. So uh, and kind of what being a hero really is, regardless of you know what power you have. Yeah. Um, were there challenges in the writing of the movie? Like what was what was fully formed for you even when you first brought it to Warner Brothers? But like, so what was that core for you? And then what sort of were the tough parts? Yeah, I mean, uh, the core thing, I think, you know, I started from the shelter pets um, mm -hmm. and then I knew that, you know, the number one super pet was Crypto the Super Dog. And so he couldn't have had an origin story. I mean, he could have, I guess anything could have happened. Uh, but anyway, it was a pretty good answer that I gave all the thing about selflessness, but really I just did it for the money. Um, let's be honest. That sounds I right. I did that sweet animation money. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so I think the trickiest thing was then once I was telling uh, Crypto's story, um, which would involve Superman. And, and um, I think the hardest thing storytelling wise was combining the two stories and finding the right, uh, dial turning the dials on the amounts of the story. I think Ace, the Kevin Hart character, had a bigger story when I first started out, almost mm. equal weight. And um, 
and I felt like maybe I could get away with it. And the more I worked on it, the more I realized that like he could still have a great story, but it really needed to be in service of uh, the crypto story. So I, I think that was the the biggest revelation. And that's one of the great things about animated films is how iterative they are. So you know, I got mm-hmm. to put the whole movie up in storyboards and doing the voices ourselves and watch my mistake. Um, <laughs> and then it probably took me a second screening uh, to finally fully admit my mistake and go, okay, oh, wow. yeah, that is a great story, but it is maybe not the perfect, it's not the right amount of that story for this movie. Um, yeah. So once I, once I, I, we, the 300 people who worked on this movie, <laughs> uh, once we found that, uh, it was really, it was really helpful. It, it's so interesting to me, you know, having I've worked mostly in TV and looking at features that just how light a touch you can be on some of the supporting stories, right? I feel like in TV, we just want everybody to have a spinoff. But in features, you know, you, to hear you talk about the, the A story, like he doesn't need that much real estate. You can get his very strong story across in very little. What was... What, what what else were some of like the learning curves on this movie and how long was the process too? Um, yeah. And by the way, just about the, the, the size of the arc, I mean, I think Ace yeah. is a little bit bigger, but even for like the character like Merton and Sasha Leone Turtle, uh, I refer to her story arc as kind of like uh, Benny from the Lego movie, uh, the Charlie mm-hmm. days. He wants a spaceship, spaceship, spaceship. Uh, right. He just really wants a spaceship and he loves spaceships. And then in the third <laughs> act, he gets a spaceship. Uh, and so I'm always like, you don't really need to do that much. Sometimes they could be more emotional and, mm-hmm. you know, like Vanessa Bayer PV's character has a bit more of an emotional kind of little tiny mini arc, but, uh, sometimes you just need a spaceship. Um, <laughs> and, and it's a satisfying uh, payoff. Like, yes. I mean, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. So Merton's, I won't spoil it for the people who haven't seen the movie yet, but hers is kind of like that. Um, <laughs> And uh, okay, and then you asked me. Yeah, what else did you? Yeah, what did you learn either as a writer or a director uh, on this movie, particularly? Yeah, I mean, this was my first time directing an animated movie, and I've been a writer Mm -hmm. in animated movies for decades. I won't say how long; it makes me feel old. But um, you know, when you're a writer, you're supporting the vision of the director. And, uh, and oftentimes I, I've worked so hard on a script and I think over those 20 or so years I've, in animation, I've learned, I, you know, I started, I'd be like, this is the script. I worked really hard on it. I, I, I refined it and I refined it and I refined it and just make this. And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, look, you can probably make, there's, there's some good movies that could come out of that. But, um, the thing that I learned in animation now as a director is like, that's just the start and it's going to change. Hmm. And so I'd say that the trickiest thing is holding on to the things that you love over, you know, you asked how long it was. It was four years of production, 10 years from when I first pitched it. Um, So holding on to the things that you love, but never holding on so tightly that you, you don't allow the room and the freedom to explore that you don't keep pushing to make it better, to make the joke funnier, the emotional moment, more powerful, uh, surprising things, more surprising. And so, uh, and it's tricky because I, I, I talked about how iterative is, you know, you do these story reels and you spend hours and hours of your life getting them great so that you can show the executives and get them on board for your movie and, uh, and, and for yourself so you can see if, that what's working and what's not. And so there can be this thing, you, you can get a feeling of like when you say you start recording the actors or when you turn things over to an animator uh, to animate, to just like try to make it as much like the story reels as possible because um, they were working. 
And, and in some cases, that is the right thing to do. But you have to always push yourself to go, no, don't settle. Hmm. Uh, maybe there is something more surprising that this actor is going to do that, that's totally different sure. than what was in the story reel. Uh, so I'd say that was one of the big things for me is like, you know, always finding that balance. Don't forget that you love something over all those years, but also always be open to trying something that you might love more. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it feels like, and correct me if I'm wrong, do you come from a comedy background? Uh, were you like a improv or comedy writing, sketch writing person? Yes, and that I failed at those things, absolutely. <laughs> um, but yeah, when but, I... But you've done all that work. Yeah, when I first graduated college, I did stand-up comedy poorly uh, for a few <laughs> years, and I made my way through a few levels of the Groundlings. It's like a cult. I didn't fully mm-hmm. get in. Um but uh and i loved it it was great and i was writing sketches and performing and uh it's good training for you know like you're saying i mean it's kind of like you know improv trains you to never just uh like i remember one time i don't even know why i was i was trying to create a tv show and we were up to the casting phase and the casting director worked on reno 911 and she was like you'd be funny come in and and read for a part on reno 911 she knew how much i loved that show um, and I love the state. And so I, I went in and I had, a, you had to prepare a character, yeah. but, um, so I, and you perform with the people in the state. So I performed with Tom Lennon, which I, which was insane. And, uh, <laughs> but I, I had an idea for where I wanted it to go. Hmm. Um, and that's the worst thing you can do in improv. Uh, you have to just throw out any notion of where it's going to go and just be in the moment and listen to what the brilliant Tom Lennon is doing and talking and saying things like this. And uh, <laughs> you should go and do what Tom Lennon said. And instead I was just like, okay, I need to steer it towards the thing as a writer that I wrote hmm. um, because I wasn't an improviser, you know, uh, really I was a writer. So, but I try to remember that even, you know, the stuff I was just saying is kind of comparable, like be open. Yeah. yeah listen. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I also wonder about you, you've, you've, written and directed some live action stuff too. You're the creator of Dr. Ken um, and and run and directed this terrific happy anniversary movie, which I really like. Um, it's, it's such a good movie. You did a great job on it. Is there stuff that you port over as a, uh, is there stuff that translates from being a live action director to an animation director? Yeah, I think so. I mean, really it's all the same thing. You're just telling stories, just different tools and, um, you know, the stuff I was talking about being iterative and story reels, you, you don't get to do that in a live action movie, right. but there are things that you can do like rehearsing or talking with your actors or improvising on the set or shooting more different versions of a thing and then deciding which way to cull it down. Um, or if you have a lot more money than I did on that movie, additional photography. Um, <laughs> right. So, you know, it's not, it's not that different. And obviously there's a ton of animation in live action movies these days. Um, and, and yeah, and, you know, you know, um, Ben Schwartz, who's in happy anniversary and is in, uh, and then super pets and he's Sonic as well. Like he, he, he's a perfect example of being able to do live action and mm-hmm. animation as a voice actor and, a, uh, and a live action actor. And, and so, um, yeah, you know, a lot of people who I started out with, uh, I was in this Warner animation group thing with, everyone who I worked with were all people who went back and forth from you mm-hmm. know, Lord and Miller, uh, Requiem for Cara, uh, who did Smallfoot and then, uh, yeah. you know, crazy stupid love and Nick Stoller who did storks and, and neighbors. And so they were all bouncing back and forth. And so I kind of learned from them and, uh, you can absolutely do it. And, uh, at the end of the day, you really are just the, the person managing a story. 
Yeah, that's that's a great way to think of it. Um, we'll wrap up just by asking you, well, a couple things. Um, if you were to give some piece of advice to a person who is uh, about to embark, let's say this weekend on his first directing uh, gig, <laughs> uh, what is the one thing that that person ought to know? Oh, wow. Um, uh, uh, what do you wish you had known? I know. Starting I mean, out. Right now, my movies come out, and uh, and there's a little distance from when it came out. And and mm-hmm. the thing that I'm kind of wishing I knew is just like there are going to be things that are outside of your control. You know, <laughs> you're not going to be able to control exactly what goes into the movie. You're not going to be able to control how people receive things. You're not going to be able to control marketing and release dates. You're not going to be able to. <laughs> control a whole bunch of stuff once you're done with your movie and we're seeing stuff happen now that's completely insane where you might not be able to control if people see your movie so um, (laughs) i would just say enjoy the process um Mm -hmm. and 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 i and i did but i think there were a lot of times along the way where i was like i I just gotta get to the finish line this is four Mm -hmm. years i just you know uh it could be tedious but it really also can be great it's like going to college with people you know and um especially we made our movie during the two and a half years of, of COVID. Yeah. So we were like all in pandemic together in each other's houses basically. And so, uh, and it was really fun. And, um, and, you know, I'm working on a couple other projects now that are just starting off and I'm reminded of that and, and, and mentioned it. It was fun to get, you know, I needed a little break of a couple months, but it was fun to get back in. So I would just say, enjoy the process and, um, and uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, listen to that, people they're, they're smarter than you are at every other <laughs> job just listen to them and and uh and tell the story you want to tell but let them help you that's great advice thank you um dc league of super pets is still out go see it um let, let me just wrap up by asking what you have seen lately that you've really loved tv movies anything you want to talk about that's gotten you really excited oh man what have i seen that i love um I mean, I'll be honest with you. My, my wife is a, a filmmaker too. And um, sometimes we get so burned out on what we do that we just watch a lot of Bravo. <laughs> like, I hear this uh, a lot. <laughs> yeah. So I've been watching a lot of, uh, you know, Southern Charm and Housewives. But uh, I'm going sure. I'm to say also the rehearsal uh, mm-hmm. I thought was fantastic. And I'm certainly not the first person to say it, but uh, I love everything that, that he does. And um, even if it's sometimes people are questioning it morally, but um, but. <laughs> Uh, that's probably a good thing. It's interesting. Uh, it makes yeah. us question what we're doing. A lot of stuff like reality things like I watch on Bravo. So, uh, so yeah, I've been loving that one. That's a good answer. Thanks so much for being here, John. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Thank you all so much for being here. Uh, could not have asked for a better group. <laughs> I'm going to ask you all to introduce yourselves on the microphones. Uh, tell us someplace where the listener may have seen your name on their television screen. And Bruce, let's start with you. Uh, I'm Bruce Miller, and I am the executive producer of The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, talk about some of the other credits where they may have seen your name. Medium, ER, The Hundred, yeah. The Hundred, and The Forty Four Hundred. No, not not, not <laughs> nothing. Um, uh, Everwood, which was lovely. Um, I got fired from every show in town before oh, I got this job. We're going to get into that. <laughs> Eric. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm Eric Haywood. Um, I formerly wrote for such shows as Empire, Power, For Life. Uh, most recently, I wrote for Law and Order Organized Crime. 
years ago, I wrote for a private practice. Um, my first writing job in the business <clears throat> was 100 years ago on a show called uh, Soul Food, the series, which was a, a TV ad- adaptation of a feature that aired on Showtime for several seasons. That was my, my initial foot in the door. No kidding. Were you on all seasons of it? Yes. Yeah. I wrote my, well, technically I wrote my first freelance episode of TV for the, the first season of the show. Um, and that went well. And then the showrunner offered me a job on staff starting with season two. So I wasn't technically on staff the first sure. season, but, but that was my sort of entree yeah, onto yeah. the show. That's great. Natalie. Um, Natalie Chaidez, most recently of Flight Attendant season two, uh, co-ran, uh, co-ran that, show ran Queen of the South, executive producer, um, 12 Monkeys, before that, Heroes, Sarah Connor Chronicles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> um, my first job was New York Undercover, yeah. right across the street at Universal Studios. <laughs> so. Oh, wow. Wild. Mm-hmm. Uh, my name is Veronica West. Uh, most recently, I created, executive produced the new show on Apple called Surface with Gugu and Bathara. Um, before that, I worked on Dexter, New Blood, the new chapter of Dexter, and before that, co-created the High Fidelity uh, reboot on Hulu with Zoe Kravitz. Prior to that, many, many network shows. <laughs> so Did you, what was journey. the first one? Uh, the first show I ever worked on yeah. was Ugly Betty yeah. when I was like 26 years old, so very lucky to have had that as my first experience and to get to do something like that so early on yeah that's cool um let's let's start with you veronica and talk about surface for a minute um looking at the shows you've worked on uh is this in some way a culmination of interests or of work that you've done to this point Um, I think in a lot of ways, it was a challenge to myself. You know, I wrote Surface on spec. Mm -hmm. It's an original idea. It's, you know, High Fidelity having been my first show that I show ran and created. Obviously, we had this pantheon of amazing material, you know, to base off of. And with Surface, I just sat down one day and I said, I want to do something really, really different. I want to show people, you know, a totally different side of myself. And in a lot of ways, it was an experiment and something I thought people maybe hadn't seen before. And I was really lucky to have someone like Reese Witherspoon read the script and say, like, I see the same potential in this Mm. that you do, you know. So uh, it's been great. Um, Well, it's it's great. Folks should check it out. Um, And Natalie, a similar question, Uh, you know, looking at Flight Attendant, you know, you've you've been the genre person for so long um and i feel like every conversation every writer i meet is like oh have you met natalie she's on all these great shows with me (laughs) like we i feel like we know everybody in common who have worked on these nerdy shows how is flight attendant uh an extension of that for you how are you how is it sort of ticking the same box but also i was brought into season two specifically because season one was a book and they didn't have a big narrative for season Uh, two and that's something that I, i really love to do um, so kind of this big crime, kind of the, the doubles of season two is an idea that I brought in. So that's kind of how it fits into my world, even though gotcha. it's a lot more comedic. Um, and Steve Yoki, who's a brilliant co-creator or, or creator, um, he, he kind of did that part. <laughs> <laughs> does, it, does it tick similar boxes for you? Or like, are you working different muscles than you've gotten to work in the past? Um, I mean, I'm 
I really want to get back into genre because I love genre. And I actually just sold an original show called Man Who Could See Through Time, That's which great. is about Congrats. a man who can see through time. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a different muscle, but just as fun. Okay. Just, just as fun, yeah. Right. That makes sense. Um, and Bruce, let's talk about Handmaids. Um, I would urge folks, you did the podcast years and years ago. Uh, we were at a different studio. This, I think it was around the first season of Handmaid's Tale. That was a whirl, yeah, it, so I yeah. don't remember very much. I'm sure. Um, and I would urge folks to go listen to that because it was a great conversation. Take my word for it. Um, but tell me, so so what season are you guys on now? Uh, we just finished se- f- finished filming season five, and it'll air in probably before this airs. Okay. So in September. All right. So that's about right. Um, I'm curious about how your relationship with the show has changed, if it has at all. Like, what have you... What keeps you going on it? What have you discovered about it? Um, uh, well, I, my, my interest with the show, uh, fortunately, is tied to my interest in the book. And I, I read the book when I was in college and I was interested, I reread it a million times. So I was actually already kind of s- very thoughtful about the world and what could possibly be beyond the book because the book kind of ends abruptly and you, all you are left with is to think beyond the book. Um, but I think my relationship with the show has changed m- mostly because I really, at the beginning, you feel like you're the steward of Margaret Atwood's story. And then as it moves along, luckily Margaret has been very, you know, we've been in contact about this. And um, luckily as we've moved along, she always pushes me to go past the book and always pushes me to kind of surprise her. And you forget that she she's an expert at having this story adapted. It Before me, it was a movie, it was a play a couple of times, it was an opera. So you know, she's very happy to have me, you know, because she's let go of it a long time ago. And I was very, I had fealty to the book and not just because I was, you know, trying to be nice to Margaret, but it was good. And it really, the story stuff worked. So I think now I feel just more comfortable doing that. And that's been not, people have been incredibly respectful to the guy writing this women show. You know, my, my group has been incredibly respectful, Margaret and Lizzie and those people. But I think it's taken me a long time to feel comfortable as comfortable with those choices, like uh, pushing a little beyond the the um, world of the book or making slightly different moral decisions than the book. That's interesting. Um, and I think that raises an interesting question, I think, about this like phenomenon that happens in a writer's room, right? Like this is, this is what we do it for, is this is the reason we have a room, is it starts to become this other thing. Um, so I want to talk about our experience in rooms and, you know, how how the show is formed once it's sort of out of the creator's hands in those first weeks of development or months of development. Um, Eric, tell me about, like, what's the best room that you've been in? What made it the best Besides room? Besides this one. <laughs> Besides this one. Um, what are you going to take with you when you're show running, well, this one, new show that you've sold? <laughs> one one other credit that I, that I didn't mention, um, my, my first and only show running experience to date, I actually uh, sold a show uh, late... 2020 i'm sorry 2019 um um and yeah you already know where this you already know where this is going um staffed the room uh it was a premium cable show we were doing 10 episodes uh we broke the entire first season i pitched to the network 
in March of 2020. Oh, really? What and, happened next? Yeah. <laughs> so you can probably imagine what, what happened next. Oh, no. So um, this, this tiny little pandemic hit, and the <laughs> network said we're going to start pulling the plug on a bunch of things that we have in the pipeline. So my honest and completely biased answer, this <laughs> the favorite room that I've been in, sure. is, is the one that I put together and had the experience running. Yeah. Um, what did you take from past rooms that you applied to that one? First and foremost, the idea that a good idea can come from anywhere. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to be the savant genius who has every single answer mapped out. Um, um, and also the, the, the idea of being flexible, because there are shows that I, there are rooms that I've been in, other showrunner shows, where the showrunner says, We're doing this. And then if you get a little bit comfortable enough as you get more experience, you say to the showrunner, I hear you, but it's okay if I pitch an alt. And sometimes the alt is like, oh, okay, they like it and they go in that direction. And sometimes they say, no, nah, I like it. I see what you're going for, but we're gonna stick with my original plan. Um, but just having the opportunity to, to be in an environment where it's okay to respectfully uh, uh, either disagree with the showrunner or offer an alternate sort of take so is something that I, you, that I encouraged. I, um, so having been in the situation on the receiving end, mm -hmm. been on staff and been someplace where they really do allow you to speak, um, how did you kind of promote that environment amongst your staff? It's a little, it's harder from the other side because there's everybody's so very, very respectfully intimidated. Well, nobody ever took me under their wing and told me how to be a showrunner. So I didn't know how else to do it, but to just be frank with people and say, look, I have an idea. I have a vision for what I want this show to be. Um, you are, um, it's an open door policy. You are free to disagree. Um, I will hear all options and opinions. I will make the final decision. And I'll let you guys know when I think the time for debate is closed and we're gonna go in this direction. But I, I definitely encouraged, like, it's like you just put it on the table and you say, you know, and every room is different, obviously. Some short runners don't want that. They just want you to be there to build onto or to contribute to the very specific direction that they want to go in. And I've also worked for showrunners who were like, I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing. Can you guys help bail me out? I sold this pilot and I don't know what happens in episode two. So that's why you're here. And then you roll up your sleeves and you start, you know, start contributing. So, so I've sort of like had the, the fortunate experience of having been exposed to the host, like the full spectrum. Um, of sure, I haven't had the nightmare, you know, throwing you know things at people and 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 temper tantrums kind of showrunner. Sure I've been very lucky in that in that respect. But other than that, I feel like I've had exposure to pretty much the full spectrum of of collaborative showrunners, mm -hmm. some more so than others. And I just didn't want to present myself as like, even though this is my first time doing it, I know it all. So if you guys want to you know contribute something that you feel passionately about, you know the basic foundation of the show. Um, and I think writers get a feel for their showrunner's mentality and temperament. Mm -hmm. So you kind of know what you can pitch me and you kind of know what I'm not going to go for after a certain number of months. Um, but other than that, it's it's anything. I'll, I'll listen to anything. And some things I'll have an immediate yes, no right. reaction to. And some things I'll say, let me think about it. Yeah. Let's let's talk about it. Like, I think this is an interesting idea of, of like understanding your showrunner and learning how to make yourself valuable in the room. And Natalie, I want to throw this to you. Um, you know, everyone here has been in a bunch of rooms and a bunch of different kinds of rooms. Um, and I want to talk about like figuring out your showrunner, what he or she needs, 
and making yourself valuable in that room. What has been that process for you? Is there a room that sticks out as either being particularly challenging or particularly easy for that? Mm-hmm. So from the showrunner's perspective, what makes someone valuable kind of thing? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, let's see, I can, I've been at all levels of function and dysfunction over 29 years. Uh, I think as a show owner, I mean, there's different roles on staffs that I'm looking to people for. Mm -hmm. So I love the person who just will pitch fucking crazy shit, the out of the box stuff that you're like, whoa. So there's that person. There's the person who just takes punches. You don't want just, someone who who can think of the stuff you can think of. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's coming up with this sideways <laughs> shit that you're like, wow, okay. And then you you know, you love the person who can't get knocked down, who just like comes back with another idea. Um, you love the person who's quiet but is a problem solver. So I really feel there's no one way to be great and useful in a room. It's there's really yeah. like a wide. And sometimes you're hiring hiring a staff person for a specific reason. You're like you're the you're the plotmeister. You're a person who's funny, and they're and they're constantly pitching like funny shit and scenes, and that's that's what makes them valuable. So I really feel like it's. Playing to your own strength yeah. as a writer and a producer. Have you, as a showrunner hiring people, made it clear? Um, I mean, I, I think I, I assume all of you have made clear in the way that Eric talked about, like, this is how I'm going to run this, this is how There's I There's too like little it of that, though. I mean, right? oftentimes you go on shows and you, no one tells you what your job is, so you're inevitably yeah. going to fail yeah. because, you know, there's there's too little of them sitting down with you and going, I want you to do exactly this every day. I, I mean, I I find that knowing what your job is uh, is was was like the biggest mystery to me at the beginning, um, for, for the first forty six years of my career. I love what you said about hiring people who don't write like you do. That was my strategy. Um, as soon as I started putting rooms together for my own shows. And I think it's great to have one person whose script you're like, oh, my God, I would have written that exact same <laughs> script. Fantastic. Everybody else, I tried to find people who seemed com- to think completely differently from me. Because in both scenarios, you know, there's a conversation of like, in these days with the short orders, do you want to write the whole season you know and I said absolutely not you know I think this show is going to be so much better television is a team sport you know like let's get people who do all kinds of different things get them together and the show is going to be greater than the sum of its parts you know so that's always been my strategy I I always compare it to like putting together a band Mm -hmm. like you don't want a band of seven guitar players like that's not a band you want (laughs) someone on the drums you want someone who sings you want someone you know on the bass and they complement each other so ideally you know when I was putting together my staff I was looking for what I felt like was a team of people like that complemented each other and also complemented you know me I, I want to pick up on something Bruce had mentioned and, and ask you, Veronica, you know, this idea of letting go of the source material or of that original script, you know, mm-hmm. you had written, we, we can talk about Surface as an example, but like having written this on spec and, and make setting out to make something different from what you had done before. Yeah. Um, tell me about like bringing in the writers and then figuring it out and sort of letting go of some of the stuff maybe you assumed about it. Well, you know, I had had time and with our executive producers put together like the season arc, you know, so there's some key plot points that happen in season one that I was kind of married to. And and it wasn't just me, but a collaboration with Hella Sunshine and Apple in like and Gugu, who is an executive producer, you know, nailing down these big turns. And the show itself, you know, it's sort of 
Sophie, who's the heroine, is not what she appears to be at the beginning, and the show is not what it appears to be at the beginning, which which might be something different for audiences. But um, she really feels like the damsel in distress. And what you come to realize without any spoilers, although I think the whole thing will have aired by the time. Uh, I think so. Yeah, is that close to it, yeah. she's really the femme fatale. You know, she's the bad guy. And I think we all knew that, and that concept informed the character. Mm-hmm. And we spent many weeks actually talking about what the backstory was for Sophie as a group. And I really mm-hmm. didn't know that at all. I had just had the time, and I know you guys have all probably been in the same situation where you're like, I got to sell this arc, you know, like what's going to make the best season of television? But then when I sat down with these really tremendous writers um, talking about why somebody would make those decisions, we got to collaborate on, you know, where she came from. You know, the story is that she's British and American. She crossed an ocean to run away from her past. You end up finding out that she was somebody else entirely. So who was she back then? We really had to start almost with season two before we could even go into season one. Um, And that was wonderful to have the input of everybody. Yeah, that's really cool. You really do want to hire people who are, are fussier than you are. I'm very unfussy, so that's not, not hard. Yeah, but people who are, yeah, people who are, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, a side, you want people you can't fool. Because when you, when we talk to anybody who isn't a writer, anybody, not, you know, Jessica, when we talk to someone from Apple who isn't a writer, you can kind of say, this is going to be great. It's going to be this, this, and this. But a group of writers will say, how is it going to be this, this, and this? And go through every little step. And if you you could say something that will fool almost everybody else, but it won't fool Yalin in my room. And, and she's not going to let it go because she's like a dog with a bone. So what you really want is people who are not going to let you get away with the thing that's rough until you absolutely know that it's rough and you're putting something rough in your story and no one's going to like it, Bruce, you know, but, but go ahead. You know, you want people who are a lot harder on the material than you are. Yeah. That's so funny that you say that because that person for me is my husband, Dan West, consulting producer. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I know, but he does never it work lets at home? Does he do that anything. at home? <laughs> <laughs> Only with story. But uh, yeah, that idea that someone's like, "This is not going to work," you know. And I just want to. I'm an optimist. I'm like, of course it's going to work. We're going to make it work, <laughs> you know. But to have somebody poke those holes at the beginning is is invaluable. Um, I, I rarely do this, but I want to hear about some specific rooms that you have all worked in because I think they're totally fascinating um, and you've worked in some really interesting places. Um, Bruce, I want to hear about the ER room. I want to hear about what it was like Me to too. work on that show. Um, oh, well, I came in, I think it was very far into the show. And luckily, I had been a fan since the beginning. I don't know how you would go into a show on season like nine and go back and watch all the episodes. Luckily, I had been a big nerd. But when I went in, I was fairly inexperienced. I had only been on one other show. I'd been working in features. And so, you know, I went in and the other people were all incredibly experienced. I mean, they had all been on the show for a long time and on other shows for just the years that they had put in in television. And so, uh, you know, my experience in that room is is feeling like I was, you know, failing them. And, and they were teaching me how to be a TV writer, and I was not giving them anything, and they were giving me an education, and then I, they fired me, which is basically, <laughs> I mean, uh, after two seasons. But, but it was... Um, uh, the people in the room were so good at it that in a lot of ways it wasn't a story education because I couldn't keep up, not even close. I I, I learned a lot about kind of how to organize and how to show and especially how to listen with respect mm-hmm. to other people um, and not just listen, not just wait for your turn to talk. Um, but I didn't learn very much about story breaking 
in in the room. I did learn individual writers, uh, Scott Gemmel, D. Johnson, uh, David Zabel, they kind of pulled me aside and very kindly beyond their job taught me how to, you know, kind of do things. But um, it, it was my first kind of writing with a group so uh, but but it was um it was like the yankees bullpen it was like you know and and it is also funny when you're in a room like that and someone the showrunner the studio goes we need some good writers and you're looking around going (laughs) you know like i'm the worst one here you should really but i mean it's just it's amazing how no matter what show you're on the people complain and one of the things they complain about is that the writers all need to be fired and replaced and and when you look around the room and you go Every single, I, every person here wrote an episode I love of television, and you're and 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 it's not like when you're sitting there working with them, you see how good they are, whether they're good or not, you know. And so they're saying we, these writers, you're like, no, the writers, you could hire other writers, but these are really good writers. That's really interesting. So it was like the Yankees bullpen. Yeah, but also, I mean, to hear that you, it was like hard to keep up is really fascinating. Um, as you went on, like, what were the couple jobs after that that and and clearly it became easier? But was there one where you were like, "Oh, this is"? I see where I. Fit I love in. how you think it became easier. <laughs> uh, um, I, I, I had a million. I had a, I had a lot of jobs, and I only lasted a year at each of them, because uh, you know, honestly, I was trying to be a co-EP at that level, and that's a, a, I think, kind of an impossible job to get, unless you already know the EP, because you're hiring like a best friend. When I was trying to hire a co-EP, I never could, never could find it, because you kind of, it's a hive mind kind of job, so I just completely failed, but I did go on, and after that, I had some good and bad experiences, but I had one terrible room experience, and that was interesting on the heels of ER, where... You know, John Wells put the executive and executive producer. It's absolutely no drama. You know, it's like three hours, three days a week, and you break the whole season, and it goes doom, doom, doom. Yeah, and it's exact. But but I was on a show with someone who, you know, was yelling and screaming and, and also was the one who always used to say, you know, what I need are some good writers, and I'd be looking around going. To your faces? Oh, yeah, oh, all wow. the time, yeah. Harsh. Um, but, he was, but he was a bad showrunner and an asshole. So those two things together, you can't, made, you can, you can't be both. You, yeah, you might be able to be, get away one or the other. Absolutely, yes. But both is yeah. toxic, horrible. Um, but I learned, I learned a lot from that about what it was exactly about him that not caused me the most, like, get insulted, but caused me the most um, constipation of ideas. What was the thing that he did that caused me never to open my mouth or not want to open my what mouth? What was it? It was the, at any moment he could turn to you and go, pitch me some ideas. Oh, is that bad? Yeah. Asking for a friend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was awful. The time I was at the urinal, it was the most awful. Okay. Where he was next to me. But um but it, it just it caused you to have like first of all, he was very mean about your ideas. So you were like at a level of anxiety so high all the time. Because if yeah. he said, Hey, could you pitch me some ideas? If you happened to open your mouth, it was he he would kill you, you know, just yell at you for what you did. So, well, it's that, that pop quiz style. I worked on a show like that, too. And it, it's everyone lived in a state of paranoia and fear. Yeah. And that's no way to get good creative work. No. Um, now, I think there are, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I yeah, think there are ahead. some showrunners who kind of thrive on that, on creating that environment. It makes them feel powerful sure. knowing that people are sort of like trembling in fear every time they might get called on. I don't know how it translates into a productive environment. Exactly. But I think some people just get off on that and it's it's the worst. Well, it seems like it may be a protection too, right? Is they're not comfortable 
with story, with their job, whatever it is, running this multi-million dollar company. Yeah. And so, like, if I can take it out here, maybe I can survive. We can cut all that out. There's another way to look at that, though, which is just, like, making sure that everybody in the room does have space to share, yeah. you know? And I think an another way to sort of approach that that I've done is to say, hey, tomorrow this is what we're going to talk about. You know, like, mm -hmm. this is the thing that I'm going to work on tonight because I can't figure it out and I want to hear any ideas that people have. So it's not putting someone on the spot, but I find there are different personalities and I try to create a room that has a variety of viewpoints and different ages and everything. And, like, sometimes people don't speak up enough and I want to hear everybody. I know they wrote an amazing script. There's a reason why they've been there, you know? So. Yeah, yeah. Um, Natalie, I wanted to, as I pick up talking about specific shows, um, I want to hear about Sarah Connor. Oh, okay. um, you know, Josh is a longtime pal of this podcast. <laughs> he okay. was on very early episodes and has been very honest about how messy he was. That's true. Um, but, and, but you must have been like, this was pretty early on for you. You must have been a kid on this. What was uh, what was your experience on the show? How did you oh. find a place on it? Um, and it feels like in many ways it sort of set you off on the career that you I, had. I loved it. It was absolutely 100% my favorite staff job. Um, I remember they called the studio, called us the Island of Misfit Toys. <laughs> and they told us that. John Worth actually told us, he goes, they didn't, we love all you guys, but you know, we got some pushback on some of you. <laughs> you know, I was like, is wow. it me? Wow. I was actually coming back. I think at the time, like I told one guy to fuck off and like it lasted my, it, I mean, it followed me for years. Are you kidding? No, what, what I'm not precipitated kidding. that. Yeah. Um, some Just racist, some ra I'll tell you what, some racist shit that I now understand I was in a hostile work environment, Interesting. but it took me many years to realize the situation I'm in. This, this was a show and I brought in a friend. I'll, I'll tell the story mm -hmm. who became uh, a showrunner later. And I was trying to advocate for him to get into to get a job. I might like my heart is beating just thinking about oh, this. Oh. And I brought this I brought this writer in. I was like, hey, this is my friend, Adam. I want him. Can, is it possible he could get the script? And he said, why don't I just bring my gardener in? So there's a series of things like oh. this that led to this fucking Jesus. blow up where I fucking lost my shit. Um, which I realized now I was in hostile work. Like I never thought of it until recently. I was like, oh my God, I was like being, I was in a hostile work environment. Absolutely. So anyways, it does lend itself to it because it's such a fiefdom. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. Like I yeah. didn't, I had not reframed it. Even in, even in my mind as like a Latino writer, like as a female writer, like I had not reframed it in my mind for the last few years. So this instant of telling this guy to fuck off in a very big Jerry Maguire-esque way. <laughs> and is this a, a like executive person that you're saying oh, this is a showrunner. Oh, okay. I was like I'm gonna fucking yell at you and you're fucking racist I mean I like sure I went the fuck off so that incident I'm not defending what I said <laughs> <laughs> um last followed me for many many years many 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 years where people were just like is she a crazy bitch right. like literally I could not get hired luckily luckily I was working I was like became friends with Doug Lyman, wrote some, a couple of movies for him. Mm -hmm. I was like doing all kinds of stuff. So people would hire me. He was, he heard that story and he was like, I like you. <laughs> like literally, I would work for all of those people. Um, but I was still on the heels of that, even though it had been even maybe like, like five, more than five or 10, almost 10, I, like it had been a long time since it happened. So I remember I, well, I limped into that meeting cause I had like hurt my leg during soccer <laughs> they were like you are the real Sarah Connor and uh, and it was just an amazing fantastic job like that room was full of heavy hitting yeah. storytellers like 
you had Tony Graffia, you had uh, uh, Zach Stentz. I love Tony. Ashley. I mean, yeah. just Joanna Callow was mm -hmm. like the writer's assistant. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Uh, Jamie O'Brien was in the room. Like, right. it was like the most heavy hitting staff of writers. And, um, and Josh, to me, was amazing. Like, mm -hmm. I, I loved him. Like, he would just fight for the writers. He's a brilliant yeah. writer. Like, um, you know, he was great this way and not so great that yes. way that was, that was. we should say pointing down he was great he was great to the writers he fought for the writers but yes. yeah dealing with executives dealing with the 100%. network and studio was so I, I but it was just and the other great thing about that show was I uh, worked met one of my mentors a man that I consider one of my mentors who's a guy named John Worth mm -hmm. who is Friedman's partner yeah on the show and I learned so much from from John Worth about show running I mean just to this day, I will still call him, even though he's now retired. And just the way he, what he modeled as a person, just stuff he did, like um, really invaluable time that I spent with him. That's great to hear. Yeah. Um, I, and I would ask, sort of picking up on the conversation we had earlier, what was stuff that you took from John that you were able to apply when you were show running? Um, I also took a lot from John Wells, who mm -hmm. I worked with in just his or organizational style. For John, it was a little more of the soft touch people skills and how to handle um, just disagreement, hmm. conflict, the lightness that he handled both up and down. Um, I mean, I could go on, go on and on. And a lot of it just emanated from him as a person and feeling his care and concern and respect for people as a writer. Um, so I think that's where it started and everything else kind of flowed out of that. That's great. That's yeah. good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> Veronica, I want to hear about High Fidelity. Um, I loved the show so much. Oh, thank uh, you. You all did a killer job on a show, on a, a property that was, you know, very meaningful for a lot of people. Myself you, included. <laughs> you made it your own, though. Like, it felt, still felt like a personal story while still being High Fidelity. Um, honestly, I don't have a specific question. I just want to hear about the show. <laughs> I wanted to ask how you guys, the music was so integral to the show. Um, did you... I, I, music is integral to our show, but we don't put it on till the very, very end, and it's integral mm -hmm. because I like it, and the and the post people like it. But your show, it seemed like it was so integral to the stories and the themes of what's going on. Did you choose it beforehand? Did yeah. you uh, have big arguments over what to put on? You know, because you could change the whole show by by changing yeah. one needle drop. Yeah, I mean, it was a layered process. You know, when basically what happened is I had started out on Ugly Betty, you know, had done a lot of kind of like female skewing comedy dramas, the kind of only thing I felt that I could do, you know, and then ended up on Chicago Fire randomly and spent two years there and kind of burnt out and was like, I'm not, this is not what I signed up for. Like, this is not why I do what I do. And it's not an easy job what we do, you know, and you have to be creatively and emotionally invested every single day. You have to show up. And uh, I just took a step back and was like, what would my dream show be? You know, what, and uh, my writing partner at the time, we had both always loved the book and we wanted to tell that story from a female point of view, you know? So the, the first script, the spec, it was a spec pilot, again, the adaptation, and uh, it was very much my story, you know? I just said like, okay, what was the music that was seminal to me? Like the first draft was set in Los Angeles and Highland Park, you know? So thinking about past relationships, all of that was very personal with the framework of High Fidelity on top 
top of it. And then, like television being a team sport, you know, Zoe Kravitz comes on as an executive producer, and she spent a lot of time in the writer's room with us. You know, she brought her own sensibilities to it. She wanted to set the show in Brooklyn, which she felt connected to, and added her own layer of music to it. You know, so now we have this. Then we have Scott Rosenberg, who wrote one of the drafts of the film, and he has his point of view, so it becomes this sort of beautiful mishmash. And then we had a small music consultant that maybe you have heard of named Questlove. So (laughs) he put uh, a lot of time and effort into that playlist as well. So I think we centered a lot of episodes around the song that we knew we were going to feature. You know, it did come from the beginning. We all had playlists in the writer's room that we were sharing, and it was no fun at all. (laughs) (laughs) But getting all of those um, personalities and those perspectives to mesh doesn't always come off as great as it did on this show. And I wondered, like, what was the... Was there some alchemy that you were able to capture? And was there some way to finesse all of those voices into something that actually works? Well, I guess what I'd say is that it all comes down to the power and the genius of Nick Hornby. You know, the fact that a guy who's 20 years older than me can write a story set in England that I see myself in, you know, when I read it when I'm 19 years old and that Zoe Kravitz can see herself in, you know, it's it just speaks to the fact that that's a universal story. And I think when you start with uh, an emotion and a conflict or a period in life or a coming of age to something that's that accessible to everybody, you know, everybody can put their spin on it and it will always gel back to that core emotional truth. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to uh, jump topics for a moment and and talk about this business a little bit. And Eric, you're running for the WGA board. Yes. This I'm is not meant incumbent. to be an ad. Yes. No, but, yes. <laughs> but let's talk about some of the things that you think are important for uh, the union at this time. Okay. Well, um, a couple of things come to mind immediately. Um, obviously, first, the, uh, the NBA, the current NBA expires next year. Um, and I think... This is just me speaking as an individual, not mm-hmm. on behalf of the the guild or the board. I think we're, we probably have uh, uh, there's a high potential. I will say that we we may be uh, we may have a fight on our hands in terms of of negotiating a deal that that uh, the majority of the union feels is fair. I think if if people are following what's happening in the industry on the business side um, to any you know significant degree, it just sort of feels like. The corporations are tightening their belts in every way possible to maximize their profits, and and the creators of the content that they are using to to generate those profits are sort of getting the the short end of the stick. And I think streaming kind of came out of nowhere and caught everybody off guard in terms of how big it, it exploded in the last few years. Um, and I feel like maybe we're playing a little bit of catch up mm-hmm. with that now in terms of compensation and transparency in terms of viewership numbers. Um, um, so that's a huge thing. Um, I also feel like just more on the on the the boots on the ground level, like we, we have this constant thing that we're dealing with in terms of of uh, and I, I hate this term. I wish we could actually abolish it. Uh, but many rooms. Yeah. Um, um, I feel like the you know, just by calling them mini rooms, I feel like we, we are giving hmm the studios and the networks and the, the the streaming services sort of like permission to treat them like the stepchild of the traditional yeah. room um, in terms of the pay they offer, in terms of how they treat the support staff, in terms of, of, of sending writers to set so they can get more experience. It's like we're almost choking off the pipeline of future showrunners. Like there's so much more to, to being a television writer than just what you contribute in the room. 
And a lot of the experience, the hands-on experience you get from being on set, you only can get by going through the fire. Yeah. And when the, you know, when, when number one on the call sheet, you know, uh, uh, comes over to you at Video Village and says, I'm not saying this shit. <laughs> like, well, you can't, you got to figure out how to manage it. And yeah. sometimes the only way to, to learn how to do that is by having the hands-on experience, which a lot of a lot of writers coming up now aren't really getting because you do six episodes or eight episodes and the room is wrapped by the time production starts and you're off looking for your for your next job. And you could conceivably move up through the ranks and get your title bumps without ever having totally. you know gotten your your feet wet on on set. And I hate that for for us, frankly. Yeah. Um, so so those are just a couple of things that come to mind yeah. off the top of my head. Well, let's um, you know. I will open this to all of you to say to ask two things. One, like, is there a solution? I think we know what we as writers would like to happen, but is there a conversation conversation that can be had with the the studios, with the networks, with the streamers about fixing this problem? And and yeah, which, which problem? The showrunner pipeline yeah, problem. This kind of like cutting off the showrunner supply. You know. N with people not being able to get set experience, not being able to become producers as well as writers. Yeah. I would say that the first step in, the, in, in towards the solution is getting both sides to acknowledge it's a problem. Sure. Because I think if I'm a shareholder at a major, you know, conglomerate, I'm like, what, what are you talking about? Right. We're, we're doing fine. Look, the we got all these out. shows in the works. Yeah. They're getting on the air. People are tweeting about them. What's the, what's the big deal? We'll get showrunners from somewhere. Um, so I think, uh, uh, the first step is getting you know people to come to the table and agree that this pro I think writers are aware that there's a problem that is looming, but I don't know that the that the the executive side. I, I, I will say that. the executives are quite aware of it, and I, I get no? calls all the time. And I was I brought in uh, to Warner's, and one of the specific things on my overall was like, look, we're having trouble getting younger younger writers of color, particularly women, from here to here. And so, like, just it's something I've been like, okay, how how do I help? Like, can I step in? Can I like mentor these people? So I do think that they are they are quite <laughs> okay, aware good. of the shortage. Like, and the, but the thing is, like, how it's a really tricky thing because how do you fix that? And there's partnering situations, like, which is something that I do as well as my own work, where you're co-show running, and that's really great when it works and it's really bad when it doesn't sure. <laughs> you know what I mean so it's a tricky it's a really tricky problem to solve and I've often wondered if the studios need to do something on a on a corporate level to kind of like ad address it because something needs to be done because they're 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 seeing the bad results of it in stuff that is mis <laughs> at times mismanaged and then it yeah. just causes internal chaos so it's something that I'm well they're well aware of because I get approached by it all okay. the time. Yeah, you know what I mean? I think things work so differently than obviously when we worked on, I worked on network shows at least, you know, in the last decade. And I remember working on Brothers and Sisters and the studio was downstairs from the writer's room, you know, Post was in the same building. Like everyone, it was just a well-oiled machine and everybody kind of got their experience and you cycled through, you know, you went off to outline, off to script, off to set, off to post and then came back. Now, you know, everybody finishing the scripts and it's a luxury as a showrunner to get to finish the season before we start shooting because the actors have their arcs. You know, you can set things up story-wise mm -hmm. and visually that you couldn't if you didn't know where you were going. 
But uh, if we have the opportunity as showrunners to take one or two writers with us on that whole journey, you know, whether they're co-EPs already or a mid-level writer, you know, I think we have an opportunity to actually show them even more of the process than we ever got to see just by going downstairs for two weeks, you know, but go on the tech scout, like do the whole thing. And if we can advocate for those people to be a part of the process, um, it could be it could be valuable. yeah just another thing to add and I think actually think about this question a lot is how do we maintain power as writers because what I'm a little bit worried about is stuff being divvied out piecemeal and there's we know people who don't have people on set who don't do people in post you know um, so how do we as a guild and as writers kind of maintain the power which I think can be diffused pretty quickly and I think we that could turn quickly on us you know what I mean yeah. so it's how do we make sure that we're staying over post that we're making sure we're keeping control over set and that we don't enter a cultural time where they're just like okay we're just going to put this person over post we're just going to have a non-writer over post um so that it is it is something i think about and how to how do we not lose that power and make sure that we hold hold that creative control have you you know in conversations about this have you circled potential practical ideas about it um no I mean, well, other hard. than what I'm doing on a per other right. than what I'm doing on a personal level, which is which is just within development. Right. Um, no, yeah. I, and I do think it's a, a good thing for the guild to kind of think Absolutely. about. And I know there's been like the showrunner training programs, but stuff so, so like that. It is something that's hard to teach. Yeah, that's the yeah. problem yeah, without the, the actual hands-on experience. Yeah, the showrunner training program, you know, takes a handful of people. Right. You know, and oh. it's it's a drop in and the bucket. Yeah, it, uh, yeah, it yeah, does. It's, it's sure. a drop in the bucket, though, yeah. in terms of the number of shows yeah. that are just like continuing to, to, to get rolled out. Um, and it's also highly competitive to get into. Right. So, yeah, I think every little bit helps. It's not I don't think it was ever intended to be no. the ultimate solution for for any one of these problems. But but we could always use more things like that. I want to hear about the best experience um, working on a story that you've had, a favorite experience, whether it was a breakthrough on a story, whether it was something that was uh, um, personal to you, um, that succeeded in a way, or like just a scene that got through from your first draft to your last draft to mm -hmm. production that was like, mm -hmm. yes, that made it through and it felt really good and right uh, the whole time. Anyone who wants to jump in first, please do. Wait, is this supposed to be fun writing? <laughs> I didn't Some get people that enjoy memo. it. <laughs> Just kidding. Well, um, when I was on Eureka, um, which was one of my favorite jobs ever, oh, such it was such a fun show, and it was also a fan base that actually liked the show. Yeah. When I was on ER, we had a huge fan base, and they all hated every single thing we did. We got letters in those days. Hated, hated everything we did. But on Eureka, it didn't matter what, we, and it was so silly. It was like made no sense. The stories, no sign, <laughs> and everybody watched with their grandparents. So it was fun, yeah. wonderful. So we had a, a, a we worked for Sci-Fi. Sci-Fi liked to throw out scripts, and so uh, at at one point we had a episode that we had scheduled all gotten all the locations, all the actors, everything, and they threw out the script. So we had to write a script, and we've all had to do this to the schedule. Mm -hmm. So we've had to do it in small ways or big ways. But this was an entire new story. Except you knew you had four hours here and four hours there. And it was, and, and I, thank God, was not running the show yet. Um, and I got kind of the, the deal of the cards, like, here, you go figure this out. 
And it was so fun because it was such another kind of puzzle. And also there's no way to fail because they can't throw this out. <laughs> you know, it's like you're you're writing like four and a half hours before they're shooting and they're like you're like, okay. So you're just you know, it literally you're typing and it's going, you know, spilling out into people's houses. Um and so that was a really wonderful, satisfying experience um as a pure writer, because I wasn't on set a lot in those days. But as a writer, it was really fun and um you know, exhausting in a in a really good way. I mean, I actually have the problem with my writers on staff almost all the time. The hard part is not getting them to work. It's getting them to rest. Mm-hmm. Um, because I never say, I'm going to think about this tonight. I always say, go home, forget what you do for a living. Because otherwise, I want them to be rested because I'm not going to be rested. I want their young brains. Right? But so I, they have such, I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but they have such good work ethics. Unbelievable. Oh, everybody. It's funny because my story is about Sarah Connor. The first day that came came to mind when we said this is, so on Sarah Connor, we used to have team, we had two rooms and one was team feelings and the other was team get shit done. <laughs> so team, <laughs> team feelings it. was led by Tony Graffia. And team Aww. get shit, I love Tony. I love She's a brilliant writer. She's the leader of Team Fields. She is leader of Team Fields. I was Team Get Shit Done. So we had Team Get Shit Done. I had Ashley, Ashley and Zach, who are like fucking brilliant writers. So we had this episode that was like Rashomon, but also time travel. It's the one where it was in Mexico. And it's like it was a a really a mind bender. Mm -hmm. So we went in a room. And I don't know why this day stands out. It was just so fun. And I remember we got really heated. I remember just today I was thinking about this. I was like, Ashley, if you want to drive, just drive. Like referring to who was going to ride on the board. <laughs> and then basically we did the whole episode by like 4.30. And then we looked at each other and we were like, I don't think Josh and Don will notice if we leave. And then we left. And that was the perfect day of television writing. <laughs> Got the story To out never happen again. Went home at 4.30. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, Veronica, has there been one for you? What sticks out? Definitely. Um, I mean, we're so lucky to get to do this for a living and get to tell stories. I'm stealing their money. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's hard a lot, but I think there's moments like what you described every week, you know, like anytime you actually make it make sense, like I feel great. (laughs) Um, I'm known for when I'm pitching something, I really believe in off the board. I will get emotional and or cry at a pitch sure. because do you do, I, the, do you do the voices of the two characters? No, I worked with a showrunner who did the voice. It was so fun. No, <laughs> the funniest thing was I when I'm writing, I need it to be perfectly silent because I'm actually hearing them talk. Mm-hmm. Like if you get into the zone, I guess that's probably like the zone. That's yeah. when it feels great to be writing is when you're just sitting alone in the dark. I tend to get up at like 5 a.m. right before the kids get up. You know, sun hasn't risen yet and you just start hearing them whether it's a fight or a romance scene and you're just trying to type as fast as you can because you're keeping up with the voices in your head which yeah. makes me sound crazy but you know, I promise we've, it's we've the all said that. <laughs> okay yeah that's the best part and there was a time on set when we were shooting surface where Oliver Jackson Cohen who plays the husband and Gugu were asking for some line changes it was a very pivotal scene and we were working on it together like in this little black tent and I've got my mask on and like you know they're looking at it we're writing in the margins together and I, I rewrote the scene and wrote in the margins they were like okay let's try it and one of them was on either side of me and they acted oh <laughs> and I closed my eyes and I was like this is what it's like at home in the dark like you guys are doing it could you come home with me it's, <laughs> it's <laughs> magic I love when magic. they do it right in front of you that was my first time like and they tried it and then they were like 
Got it's, it. It's very <laughs> I, weird. I Lizzie at one point said, oh, I think we can do it like this. And she grabbed me and put me over here. And she walks like this close. And she says, don't panic. I'm not going to kiss you. Because there was a kiss in the scene. And I was panicked. I mean, she had a look on her face like she was re June, you know. Yeah. I'm a total sucker. They, they could yeah. act their way out of, around it's, me. All the I think it's it, like for those of us who did not come up as actors, which I, I don't know if anybody did, like it's magic. No. Right? Like it's something we could never do. And they capture something and become another person. Yeah, yeah. it's magic. Uh, but Eric, what is, what is the writing thing for you? This is a hard question to answer because... I still get a kick out of the smallest things after all these years. Great. Like, I'll be at home writing a scene, and it's like, well, I need a name, exterior or something. I need a name for this company. And then you just go, I'm just going to call it Bruce Miller Enterprises. And you put <laughs> it in the script, and then it goes through the works. Right. And then, like, two months later, you're on set. And it's I like, the art department has made a fucking <laughs> sign that says Bruce Miller Enterprises. And it's like... I fucking came up with that. It was like in my brain, and now it's like a three-dimensional thing. Yeah. Um, I did the same thing when I worked on For Life. Um, um, I had to write an episode where we, it was a, 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 a legal drama set in a prison. Um, and I had to introduce this other prison because there was a prisoner getting transferred to our main location. And I came up with the name of the, of the, of the other prison, and I decided that I would research and I would name this prison after a slave ship because it was my way of trying to draw a connection between the history of slavery and the 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 prison industrial and I was gonna make so a how long did it. you spend on this I spent probably a couple hours like oh, on Wikipedia I'm, looking so, at names I, I'm so impressed because it needed to be it needed to sound completely innocuous and 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 it needed to pass pass clearances yeah and then uh, I came up with a name. And then, like I said, a couple months later, I'm in New York. We're on location of an actual prison. And the art department had made this huge, it wasn't real stone, but it looked like a huge stone sign out front sure. with the prison name on it. And the art director uh, was a black woman. And I told her later, like, did you know I named this after us? She's like, no, I had no idea. <laughs> and it made it onto the, and it was just sort of like one of those oh, things where cool. just internally you come up with something that, that speaks to you and you don't need the whole world to even know right. what it means, but it's like, oh, that's on national television. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of cool. Really um, I think it affects the way you write the rest of it. It gives yeah. it all an epic feel yeah, to you. Yes, yes. Okay. And it also makes you feel like you're kind of getting away with something. Cool. Because it's like the showrunner didn't know, the, the clearances department, legal department didn't know, the actors didn't know. And later on, I told the art, after they had made the sign, and she was like, oh, I wish I had known that. That's really cool. Like, I didn't want anybody to know and then have them come back and say, well, we might offend someone in, in Iowa, so let's give it a more neutral name. Um, I also have a very dark... Uh, uh, example of this, if that's okay. Sure. A couple of years ago, I was walking home. I was walking to my car. I was. Uh, I had gone to see a play at the Pantages. I was walking to my car by myself late at night, and I got stopped by the police. Uh, sirens, squad car rolled up out of nowhere. These cops jump out. They grab me. They put me up against the fence, handcuffs. There had been an incident at some nearby nightclub where a woman had gotten assaulted and they were looking for the guy and I fit the description. Um, and then, you know, they're questioning me, they're, they're patting me down and all of this stuff. And then the woman, I guess, had come running over and saying, that's not the guy, that's not the guy. So then they finally let me go. And it was such a demoralizing, upsetting experience 
that I kind of put it away in the back of my head. And a couple years later, um, I was working on Law and Order, Organized Crime. And I need, we had a scene where, where, where the Elliot Stabler character was, was undercover and his boss needed to convey some information to him while he was undercover. And I couldn't figure out the gimmick. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to take that shit that happened to me and I'm going to make it happen to Elliot Stabler. So in the episode, he's coming out of a diner and a NYPD squad car pulls up and this cop grabs him because he's with a, he's with his one of his contacts who can't know that he's actually a cop. And he slams Stabler on the hood, pats him down. And then you re we reveal later that it was all a ruse for him to for this cop to slip Stabler some information. But it was another sort of way to like, like, what do you do with this like horrible incident that happened to you? It's like you make NBC pay you for, for for it, and you put it in an episode. And again, nobody has to know the origin of it. It was just it came off like, oh, this is a clever little undercover sly move. But it's like those are one of the things where you feel like if I can like synthesize my actual life experience yeah. into any show that I'm working for in a way that feels seamless, then I'm not saying I, I'm glad this thing happened to me, so I was able to put it into a into a script. I would rather it had not, sure. but if it had to, I'm like, all right, well, let me let me get a, a, a residuals check out of it at the very least because I'm not getting anything from the LAPD for it. Um, so so and those are the kinds of things that I, I pride myself on, sort of like slipping personal things that resonate with me into an episode of TV in a way that doesn't stick out like a sore thumb or feel like to the average reader or viewer, I'm trying to like send a message and it just sort of feels like, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm putting some of my DNA into this. It's not just, you know, it's not a scene that anybody could have just written. Well, that is, this is what we're trying to do, right? Like you want your writers to have a lived experience and yeah. you want that yeah. lived experience to be on the page. Right. Um, that's why we have to get them out by 4.30. Um, <laughs> we're going to wrap up, as we always do, by asking what you are watching on television these days, what's getting you excited or inspired, what do you want to recommend, um, what are you talking about with your friends, your rooms, your family? Um, movies are good, too, whatever you feel like talking about. Bruce, let's start with you. Uh, my room is it watches everything <laughs> and, and, and discusses everything kind of you know, to the end. But So they were all watching The Golden Age. Um, Gilded, Gilded Age. Gilded Age, yeah. yeah turning into my father the gilded age <laughs> they were all watching the gilded age um and and so i didn't watch the gilded age but i i enjoyed you didn't need to. no 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 it's much more fun to, <laughs> to let those people sure. um uh but um you know honestly you know i i i don't have time to watch tv yeah so the last thing i watched was um i watched spotlight again because i'm That's trying to I'm, I'm working on the testaments which is the new handmade oh, yeah, show yeah. How cool. and i you know uh, i'm just working on kind of stylistic stuff so Oh, I watched, the, which is an excellent movie, by the way, for the forty seventh time. Was oh, also yeah. excellent. Yeah. It's one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eric, what are you watching? Um, I guess this will be old news by the time this podcast airs. But um, last night I watched the House of the Dragon premiere mm -hmm. on HBO. How was uh, it? Game real dragony. I it was real dragony. Mm -hmm. um, it was it was real. You know, it was what the Game of Thrones uh, 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 franchise promises: lots of blood and guts and nudity and dragons and <laughs> violence and all of that. So, uh, watched that last night, and then we watched right after that. We watched as a, a sort of a palate cleanser. We watched the She-Hulk uh, uh, oh, premiere. So, so I was fun. It was like, it was, yeah, yeah. My wife was like, I don't think I want to watch this. I'm like, I'm like, eh, well, just bear with me. It's a half hour. You know, you you can make <laughs> right. it through a half hour. And then she was like, I think I want to watch the next one. Yeah. So, so that was fun. Um, 
and uh, I'm in the middle of watching the second season of The Boys on mm-hmm. on Amazon, which uh, which I'm enjoying very much. Good, good answers. Veronica, what are you watching? Well, like Bruce, I don't have a lot of time to watch <laughs> TV unless it's children's entertainment. But um, <laughs> sure. I'm very sensitive as a person and as an artist, and I'm very competitive. So it's hard <laughs> for me to watch television that is like doing the same thing I'm sure. doing or doing something I wish I could do. So just sharing that with people to <laughs> allow my vulnerability to shine. Appreciate it. But uh, the last narrative drama that I remember being like, oh, my God, is it out yet? Is the next one out yet? Was Squid Game. Like, mm-hmm. just unbelievable. So, so completely different from anything I would think yeah. of, and yet, like, so totally relatable and some really incredible, just like groundbreaking narrative devices and like things that I could see kind of like paradigms and math problems that you could take out of that and put on top <laughs> of a different kind of story. Sure. But, um, I'm also a huge Bravo fan and Summer House, Southern Charm for life. <laughs> <laughs> There's no shame in that. This stuff comes up I'm every time. I'm not ashamed. <laughs> By all means, mention it. Uh, Natalie, what are you into? What are you watching? Honestly, what I'm uh, watching is Drive to Survive, the Formula One series. (laughs) I love that show. I'm absolutely obsessed with that series. I like plow through four seasons of it. Um, And drama wise, oh, is that right? It's it's so, oh my God, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. So well done. Uh, And Only Murders in the Building, I'd say, would be the, the show that I'm like, yeah, in love with right now. These are good answers. Um, thank you all so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Um, come back anytime. Thank, thank you. you for having us. Thank you. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.